Yes, indeed. Good morning. Welcome, everyone, to Live Dharma Sunday for February 12th, 2017. Buddhist tradition, <coughs> Mahayana tradition, today is Nirvana Day, um, one of the three major religious holidays in Buddhism. The historical Siddhartha Gautama, his birth in the spring, and then his Enlightenment Day in December, and then his Passing Away Day in February. Nirvana Day also means <clears throat> enlightenment or awakening, extinguishing of human uh, defilements and passions and limitations, greed, anger, ignorance, and uh, <clears throat> It's sometimes called the Mahapari Nirvana Day. Maha means great, great passing away. Meaning that the idea that when we humans, when when we're still alive, we cannot really be completely free of our human ego and selfishness and, and self-centeredness because we're human beings. And that's a crucial part of that realization is a crucial part of awakening. So in a broad sense, when we physically die, then it's complete, absolute awakening. No more ego. Uh, Just as a statement of fact. (laughs) February is also President's Day, we celebrated Lincoln's birthday, and it's also Valentine's Day. These are all can-be American Dharma holidays. Uh, President's Day is the, the, the values that Lincoln represented can be related to or integrated with so-called Buddhist values, okay, how they interact. And, of course, Valentine's Day, love... Love and compassion, how is that expressed in a in Buddhist perspective? These are all potential spiritual tools to to help us, remind us about the teachings in the month of February. I want to mention just a little bit about what I call the three M's, talking about spiritual tools. In Buddhist tradition, from long, long ago, these three have have, have uh, maintained themselves, but they are in different. They, the manifestations, uh, the way they are expressed, is different. But the three M's are mudras, mantras, mandalas. Uh, mudras. Uh, mean hand gestures. If you look at any Buddhist statue, it always has some kind of hand gesture. And when you think about it, in in just human secular civilizations, there's all kind of hand gestures. (laughs) We express ourselves through our hands. We shake hands, we wave, we, you know, we we make a fist, you know, different uh, groups in society have their own particular handshakes or, you know, all kinds of, if you're a Star Wars fan, (laughs) 
Trekkie. You could do a certain gest- hand gesture. Okay. Uh, kind of gestures, thumbs up, thumbs down. Good, bad, all kind of things that it communicates. Huh? And religion, it's Buddhist tradition, there, you could get a book on you know, hundreds of mudras, okay, all representing different things or different teachings or, or different kind of spiritual tool. Okay. Um, the mantras are means recitations. Sometimes in the long history of Buddhism, you know, we're talking about people and time, particular time and history, place. Uh, it gets mixed in with native, nativistic belief systems and customs and so forth. And sometimes the, the mantras, the recitations get used for human purposes of uh, superstitious stations. Superstitious in the sense that they are done with the motive or, or purpose of uh, having protection from from evil, okay. and of course you can see how that could be spin out into more superstitious type behavior. Uh, so it's a big topic. Okay. Recitations, what their purposes, how they develop, what the, okay. but it doesn't have to mean the stereotype view that some people might have of uh, recitations, mantras. Could be anything. I mean, it could be. It's our spoken word, in a sense. It could get narrower and narrower, but in the broad sense, any recitation, and all religions express themselves through language and voice. And the third M, mandala, means visual representation of spirituality, religious art. Uh, but mandala means not statues, uh, this kind of art or painting, but it is paintings, yeah. A uh, certain kind of religious Buddhist art uh, in, this, in the narrow meaning traditional, uh, what you might call a traditional mandala design, whether it's painted or whether it's done with uh, uh, colored sand, you make a sand mandala. But in a sense, broad sense of the word, any visual, graphic, iconic representation, okay, that could one can gaze on and be reminded of spiritual qualities, values, and get comfort, get inspiration. Okay. Uh, so we need to use all these all these tools. We need a lot of help. And I want to just elaborate on mandalas. Uh, a few this morning, a few words. Uh, I had been thinking about this. Now you know we have a bright dawn lay ministry program. They have a curriculum and so forth. Uh, one part of the curriculum near the end of the two years, the, each group does a um, mandala project. And the way this started out was uh, maybe five six years ago. I was in Starbucks, particular Starbucks. They had uh, some kind of like um, a mural, 
on the wall in the back. Maybe you might recall this mural. It's uh, it's a lot of words, phrases, kind of artistically designed, different sizes, different fonts, uh, scattered on this wall. Um, phrases that depict having a cup of coffee, maybe, uh, and all the myriad associations with that. Maybe having a cup of coffee while you're watching the leaves come down in the fall. Maybe uh, getting together with people. Maybe a quiet moment. Uh, And so it had all kind of uh, different phrases. And uh, I said, gee, that's kind of like a mandala. I wonder if we could do that in a Buddhistic way. Different teachings, different nuggets, different personalized models and quotes and favorite sayings and a person could make their own personalized mandala, broad sense of that word, not a traditional sense. But so I so I suggested this. I thought talking about it to students and there one of them noticed that there's um was a website that sold Buddhist objects and one of the objects was a refrigerator magnet. And that magnet was uh, some different teachings or even words like compassion, uh, interdependency, oneness, kind of generic, broad words. And they were an arranged, arrayed on kind of a, a square design and with different rectangular shapes in there that the words were appearing in. Um, so I thought, oh, something like that. Just substitute your own personal words instead of the words. Make your own mandala design like that. So we, maybe six, seven years ago, introduced it to our curriculum. And uh, I wrote up some instructions and had some suggestions. And I was thinking, you know, I gave them the design of the one that I had had in mind something like that, but you're free to do anything. <laughs> in that first class, that was the sort of the broad instructions, but they just took off. None of them used that format or motif or pattern. They all went, they all went wonderfully crazy and creative and made mandalas that just blew me away. It's been tremendous success in a way. It's it's turning the creativeness loose, and then you're just so amazed. Well, in a small group of people, and you say, you turn them loose on a project like this. So I've been doing it every year, and uh, we just got back from LM9's group. They're finishing up in in May, just around the corner, really, for induction, we call it, induction ceremony here at Corsco in California uh, at our center. And uh, so they submitted their mandalas. And, uh, of course, mandalas, you have to see them in order to get a sense of them. But really, uh, and we give them samples of prior ones just to give them an idea. Mm -hmm. Do this, do that. Did you know? 
can't just say, hey, do anything. <laughs> you know, it helps to have ideas from other people, but then it's it's amazing what the human mind, individual creativity comes up with. We should all do this. But we could talk about it and say, yeah, 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 but unless it's a structured part of a, some kind of a program, it's pretty hard to do it on your own. Um, I wish I could do one. And this is not really an artist. You're not being evaluated or, you know, in any sense about, oh, this is great, isn't it? I mean, that might be there on some level where, you know, you want to feel proud or good about what you created, but it's so unique, you know. It's like an abstract painting in a way. But they, during the course of their studies, they've been part of each week is to, to make nuggets, you know, kind of kind of a the, the nut or a personalized phrase that capsulizes the the reading for that week. What did you learn? Okay. And you could be creative with that. You could call it a mantra. It could become a mantra if it's some word that you know, like one of my personal ones. Is keep going. And they get deeper and deeper and last your whole life and they they, they 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 do become a you know, that kind of an impact. And uh and the first step of course is to have some possibilities. You don't know how these Bodhi seeds might become a big old tree over many decades of one's spiritual journey. So I've got all these one dollars and I wanted to share that with you. Well, I want to introduce today's guest to give us a Dharma glimpse. His name is William Sayo, and he lives in the Chicago area. He was part of our LM6 group. So, let us hear from William Sayo. Good morning. Wanted to share a Dharma glimpse that I had this past weekend here in Chicago. I had the opportunity to represent the Midwest Buddhist Temple here in Chicago at an interfaith prayer service and rally for refugees. And it was quite interesting to sit there and to be involved with this, to see all the different faiths coming up and talking and sharing how each faith felt that the refugees deserved the opportunity to be in the States. The story that I shared was the mustard seed. And if you're not familiar with it, I'll tell it to you now. A lady loses her child and she's distraught. She goes around looking for the child, trying to find some way to bring the child back and people seeing her distraught think, well, maybe the Buddha can help her. So they go and talk to her and tell her to go see the Buddha. Well, she goes and sees the Buddha. And he goes, well, the only way that I can help you is if you can bring me a mustard seed from one house that has not suffered any loss. So... She gets excited and she goes running from house to house 
asking, knocking on the doors, asking for a mustard seed. And people, of course, are happy to give her a mustard seed, but then with the stipulation, she says, but I can only take it if you've not suffered any loss in this house. Well, as you can imagine, every house had suffered loss in some way or another, whether it was a mother, father, brother, sister, grandfather, great-grandfather, someone had passed away in some in fairly recent times or at any time. So she could not take it. And as she went from door to door, it dawned on her that everyone suffers from loss. Everyone feels pain and anguish. And she went back to the Buddha and told him of her discovery. And with that, her pain was lessened. It's never gone to lose a child, but it will be lessened. We share it, understanding in our interconnectedness of everyone that we're all together. What does this have to do with refugees? Well, if we look back in all of our time, if you go door to door, if you look far enough back, whether it's you know five, ten thousand years even, everyone came here to this land from somewhere else. I'm of Irish descent. I know that my great-grandparents came over. They had their own problems being a refugee when they came to the States. My grandfather grew up in the States, was born and raised here, but he had problems just being Irish and being from immigrants. And my wife's family also has immigrants from Europe. I have many friends that have relatives from somewhere else. Whether you're coming from South America, Europe, Asia, Australia, wherever it is you're coming from, somebody's gotten here before you. So we've all got immigrants. In our past, we've all migrated. We've all come here. We've all been a refugee of some sort fleeing from something. So with that in mind, we think about the interconnectedness of all of us. And for a person to deny another person basic rights and health and protection because they feel that they are better than that, we're separating ourselves into them and us. But there is no them and us. It is only we. That is what's made this nation great. We, the people. Not us, the people, and them, the others. But we, the people. I guess I wasn't sure exactly what was finished. Uh, he had taped his talk earlier, so I would just I just just played the tape, and I don't know whether Adrian who whether there was some technical aspect of the end of his talk or not, but the U.S. being a land of immigrants, you know, <laughs> uh, 
today's front page of the Sunday Fresno Bee, there was a the article on the Japanese internment experience. Over 100,000 people of Japanese descent, <laughs> Japanese Americans, some third generation, some say too, even though they were young, included, were uh, put into internment camps. And this was, in fact, suggested by somebody a few weeks ago for the Muslims that said, hey, there's a precedent. <laughs> they, they, they got, this is the opposite of what the meaning of reparation and everything was and the unconstitutionality of it. It's the opposite. They said, hey, that's a precedent. We put the Japanese American in, in camps. Maybe we should consider doing this for the Muslims. Okay. <laughs> that shows you the mentality. Uh, the crazy, hysterical mentality and, of course, wartime, that does not excuse it. Uh, and what the Japanese and Japanese Americans had to experience, they're really standing up okay, and saying, hey, you know, our experience was a disgrace. And then the American government, in fact, did give redress and formal apology you know, everyone got a, that was in the camps got a formal letter of apology from the president. Okay. At the time, and uh, so many years ago, and in fact, it was backed up with uh, reparation redress money for each individual. And uh, of course, some of the older ones had already passed away, and they didn't. You know, they're the ones that suffered the most, probably. Didn't get it, but. Um, So this is a very interesting time in American history. Um, and all the values of respect for individual individuals, not using the labels, the isms. You know, if you start talking about Buddhist values and human values, whoa, you know, it's a never-ending journey, challenge, battle <laughs> of vigilance see, for everybody. And there's no answer, I would say. Now, we would like to think, oh, well, you know, part of humanness means you're in groups and the, the reality is, and this is not pessimistic, you know, what's the inherent nature of man, good or bad, or what, anything like this. It's just the way it is in terms of we call it conflict, but the overriding perspective of the universal values of humanness, we all we all get sick, we all have to die. I mean, to be that kind of sharedness. We all have difficulties. None of us have whatever perfect means. Okay. Perfect happiness, perfect you know, perfect life. Okay. Of course not. Huh? Difficulties. And that's what compassion means, I think we have to realize. Compassion does not mean somebody who, who has it better than somebody else 
lends a helping hand, we cannot really, in the sense I'm talking about, you can't lend a hand to people in, that are suffering because this is human, the basic human suffering I'm talking about, of being a human being, being caught in different ways. You know, the specific situation might be unique for a certain time in history, but the fact that we have these emotions, human emotions, uh, to empathize with others, that's what I'm talking about. That's compassion. See, calm, passion. Calm means together, C-O-M. Communal, community. Compassion means feelings uh, to suffer together. Say, hey, yeah. So like, you know, it's a cliche, but I feel your pain. Uh, I know. I remember that really, be- really beautiful story of Thich Nhat Hanh was nominated for Nobel Peace Prize by Mark, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. But Nhat Hanh's work in the Vietnam War, and he he was a nego- sort of a go-between, a negotiator. That was his position, a mediator. He wants peace. And he cannot bring peace about. You know that? He can't solve a problem. He can, you know. His compassion is to teach empathy. If you're a mediator, that's a dangerous position because each side feels <laughs> you're on the side of the enemy. Them. If you're not with us, you're against us, that kind of thing. I mean, he's how he saw his purpose of being a mediator was to say, to go to each side and try to let them know how the other side is suffering. Wow. That's the core of compassion, man. And we have to really show these kinds of values and these kinds of times. You have to realize that, you know, what home means. What is our home? This is more than in a nationalistic way. Your home is human beings. That's all for today's broadcast. Till next time, hey, keep going, and you have a wonderful day. Thank you.